This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We started the week getting reaction to worrying news that nursing homes are going to take an influx of patients waiting for beds in hospitals. This move comes amid a shortage of long-term care workers and another plan by the Ford PCs to allow fully vaccinated personal support workers and other employees work in multiple homes. Even though nursing home residents have received at least one dose of COVID vaccine, scientists say fully vaccinated people like PSWs could still transmit the virus. Is this just another example of sacrificing our elders? Libby asked this of the Zoomer squad. Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, interim chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media and chief membership officer at CARP. I'm not qualified to say what the risk is of a PSW who has been vaccinated, uh, you know, God forbid succeeding, it's the bad, a bad word, I suppose, in infecting someone, whether they can pass along the virus, even though they've been vaccinated. But to add more people to an already overloaded system and then to claim, I think, rather disingenuously, as the ministry did in their announcement, that this is a great example of how they're working proactively to deal with things, it's, uh, it's appalling. Bill? We're hearing from our members that they're uh, very, very concerned. It uh, it seems like they're experimenting with these uh, uh, with the seniors, uh, and they don't know what's going to happen. They didn't follow up on their original promise to find more staff, so we wouldn't be short-staffed in long-term care. And now, and now they're using this as a way to uh, backfill and the risk. Uh, and the worry among our members and other seniors uh, is extremely high. Peter, I'm not even sure about what the disclosure rules, because we've heard that among long-term care workers, vaccine hesitancy may be as high as 30%. And, I mean, as far as I know, they don't even have to disclose whether or not they're vaccinated. Now, I, d- I don't know if they disclose to their employers. It's It's... Very murky, to say the least. Uh, do you understand the rules around that? I don't. I, I was trying to parse through them today, and I, I couldn't quite make it. But, um, you know, it is alarming if there aren't, uh, you know, you, if these people don't have to prove they've been vaccinated, you know, before they, they go between uh, homes. And and I think we're just setting it all up for a repeat of the first time around. And um, one question I'd like to ask Bill, though, um, is is how many of the nursing home residents in Ontario have received both shots? Have they, have they only received the one shot or, or, or are most uh, received full vaccination? No, our understanding is that most have only received the uh, first shot, not the second. And right, fact, right, which creates some the nursing home problem here because I th- I think uh, in although the, hot the first zones... shot reduces um, 
you know, reduces the transmission. It doesn't completely reduce it. So if we have people moving around who are infected, it's just going to spread infections, I think. David, I mean, you know, I the, the Hospital Association, they are strapped. They have asked for this. But what do you make of, of the minister agreeing so quickly and... Um, well, I think I think the problem you have here is that there's been no real honest communication throughout, and they're trying to present uh, desperate measures as proactive problem solving. And it may be that they have no choice. I'm a little bit more impressed by the fact that they asked for the mil- military to step in again. And I saw just moments ago an announcement that the military is getting ready to send some <clears throat> ICU nurses and some mobile emergency teams into Ontario, at least that's a kind of an acknowledgement. That at least you're saying, look, I'm going to draw on some emergency thing I normally wouldn't draw on. It's there. I'm going to use it. This is more, I'm ba- as you said, you used the word earlier, backfilling, or, or uh, it's, it's and in violation of what they said earlier about putting an iron ring around nursing homes. Um, it's contradictory, and I think they're the victim of their own previous rounds of either misinformation or incomplete information or, or shifting definitions of what works and what doesn't work. And as a result, I think they've used up whatever reservoirs of uh, credibility they had. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP. Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer of CARP. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. As an update to that conversation, Health Minister Christine Elliott announced on Wednesday that hospital patients could be transferred to long-term care or retirement homes to free up hospital beds and resources for COVID patients. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. When our Tuesday strategy panelists joined Fight Back this week, top of mind was the latest proposal by the Ford PCs to pay for a doubling of the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit to $1,000 a week. The conversation was a day before the governing Tories also announced a paid sick leave program for up to three days for Ontario workers. The federal CRSB is not a legislated sick day program. It is emergency funding for workers who've tested positive for COVID-19 or have been forced to isolate because of a workplace outbreak. In addition, applying for the CRSB is done retroactively and only covers employees who need to take off more than 50% of their work week. Joining Libby on Tuesday to discuss, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. Here we have... Um, a provincial government that obviously needs some support. They're under a lot of pressure with regards to paid sick days because it's been ongoing for so long, and we had it instituted, and now they're trying to do what they can. <laughs> you know, he says he wants to do it bigger and better. It's a bit of an overpromise that he made again in regards to this issue, and he's putting the onus on the, on the federal government. The federal government, to their credit, have been providing a lot of support uh, to Ontario through these pro- through their program of serve, they already have a federally regulated sick days policy for regular uh, for their 
federal regulated businesses, and they're saying to the province, you do the same. In that case, then we'll talk. And I spoke to Michael Couteau yesterday, who brought forward the private member's bill around six days, and he was pleased that the NDP spoke in favor of it, but not surprised that the PCs, once again, are saying, we don't want to put the onus on employers. We're going to put it on the taxpayers. If we go to the federal government, let the rest of Canada help pay for it. And that's, in essence, what they're doing. John, what's your response to that? I think the problem has always been this, and that is at the very beginning of the pandemic, at the height of the crisis, you know, you saw a lot of cooperation between the provinces and the feds and even, quite frankly, the municipal governments. But as this pandemic has moved on, has moved forward, and it's gotten, in some cases, more complicated, worse, you're seeing a bit of a splinter between the cooperation of all three levels of government. Ford, the premier, has always, has always said when it comes to sick pay, that the federal government has a program. There's, there's multi-million dollars of, of money that was earmarked for that. But the issue was and continues to be that it was never enough. Critics were always saying that. Even the premier was saying that. So I think the fact that he stepped up and said, look, we're going to double it to $1,000 in four weeks is good. But you can't do it alone. You have to have the federal government helping. And I think that's been the challenge. And that is the federal government makes these announcements when they do. But then when it comes to uh, the rubber hitting the road, and, uh, and and actually where the action happens, it fails on, on a number of cases. I think the, the provincial government was looking forward to this federal budget to add more money to that particular item, and it didn't happen, so, so the premier had to step up and do it himself. The issue has always been that these workers cannot afford an interruption in the money they receive, Karen, and yeah. having the federal government <laughs> administer it, it is not going to solve that problem. No. So there's there's a couple issues that, that have been talked about. You know, one is that the workers need the money right away. The second is that the federal government has a program that actually doesn't administer very well, compounded with the calls for the provincial government to develop a program they actually don't have. To think that the, this government can turn around a sick day policy and program and implementation and actually have it deliver cash to workers who need it in time is probably not reasonable. So I think that the idea that they would go to the federal government and say, can you deliver this on our behalf and we'll flip the bill, is a reasonable one. But then to have the federal government come back and say, well, you need to mandate employers to pay sick days, it doesn't help us. And so the question is, as an employer, I staff have to take time off to go get tested, and I've paid for it as an employer because it's in my interest to have healthy employees. I also have the benefit of collecting the Canadian emergency wage benefit for my employees, so it doesn't cost me as much money. So I think it is right for the federal government to say, employers, you are responsible for the health and safety of your employees. If they are sick and spreading this pandemic, then that's on you to fix. And if you need to collect some emergency wage subsidy, collect it, because if an interrupted paycheck is the most effective way to keep these workers from feeling that they can't feed their family. So the benefit should flow from the federal government to the employer, to the worker, and then the federal government and provincial government can do the accounting at a later date. Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. And Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel. This conversation took place a day before the Labour Minister announced an additional plan to give Ontario workers three days of paid sick leave, which would be reimbursed to employers by the government. That legislation passed on Thursday. 
You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, Pfizer goes to the pharmacies. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It goes without saying the third wave is hitting us hard, and it's different, more contagious, and more dangerous for younger people. The focus for COVID-19 vaccines has shifted to so-called hot zones, where there are the most outbreaks and need for more vaccine. And while the focus of pandemic relief now seems to be on younger people, especially given the very tragic death of a 13-year-old Brampton girl, the fact remains most of the people who are in hospital, in ICUs, or dying after contracting COVID are over 60. On Tuesday, Libby Snymer was joined by Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network, and first talked about new research suggesting first and second doses of the vaccine don't have to be from the same vaccine maker. The current recommendation from the CDC and other health bodies is that we don't mix and match uh, vaccines. We don't know uh, whether that's effective. So the first dose that you received, the vaccine that you received, your first dose should be the same that you received your second. And even just thinking from a practical point of view, it's, it's unlikely that the producers of each of these vaccines are going to want to enroll patients in a study that includes a, you know, a, essentially a rival or competitor's vaccine. So, I mean, we, we really don't know the answer to that. Presumably, if it's two mRNA vaccines, it's probably not a big deal, but nobody's advising that to be done. We, we do advise that people use the same vaccine that they got their first dose with. It certainly is possible that in the future, if you have uh, to require a second, a, a third dose or a booster shot in a year's time, there's no reason to believe why you couldn't start a new series. So when you, fi- when you start a series, you should finish it. But if you need a second series of vaccines, there's no reason to believe why you couldn't get something else entirely. We know that from flu vaccinations, people do receive over the years various types of vaccines annually. And so that's certainly acceptable. And that's based on what we know, of, uh, which vaccines work best in which populations. Now, the military is arriving here. Uh, what do you make of that? I think uh, any kind of help we can get, it makes sense, especially in areas of the country or areas of the province, I should say, that are most hard hit. So we know that the northwest uh, area of Toronto and area in Peel as well, where there is very high uh, numbers of hospitalizations, ICU admissions, that's where the most help can be provided. And, you know, when, whereas in the first and second wave, there was concern about help being provided to the long-term care facilities. Now the, the more overwhelmed areas are the acute care facilities, are the hospitals, particularly the general wards, and especially the ICU admissions. We're still seeing you know, almost 60 new admissions to the ICU every day. Wow. Uh, and uh, I want to ask you, because we've, uh, we've seen this move on the part of the long-term care ministry, and they want to move people who are alternate level of care into nursing homes. And it seems to me that's what caused a big problem the last time. And they also want to allow uh, PSWs and other workers who ha- are vaccinated to, to work in multiple homes. Does that give you any pause? I think uh, one of the big differences this time is that there's vaccination available. So whereas placing 
patients in long-term care facilities would have been a high-risk maneuver in wave one or wave two, there is a significant number of people vaccinated in those areas, patients and health staff, making it you know, per- perhaps the more safe place for people to be at this point. The other thing to recognize is that you, know, you can think of the situation as being like a green zone, a yellow zone, red zone kind of situation with your, with your workforce, with your manpower. If you're in a, you know, a light situation, then yeah, you would try to restrict things and do things a little bit more carefully. But when you're in a red zone situation where manpower is at, there's a shortage and you need and your priority is patient safety, then you will have to do a few things that you wouldn't otherwise do because ultimately the, the most important thing is to keep patients safe. It's important for the public to recognize that whether or not an individual is immunized is actually private health information. So technically, at this point in Ontario, you're not required to provide that information to your employer. If you're asked, you certainly can volunteer that information. And at every hospital, the um, occupational health departments are always asking staff to volunteer that information, so that's known. But you're right, it's not uh, required for you to volunteer that at this point, Um, although it is required for you to provide other personal health information to occupational health, just not this. Dr. Alan Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. This week, we learned that a select number of pharmacies are participating in a pilot project to administer the Pfizer vaccine. Up until now, pharmacists have only been administering the AstraZeneca shot, But that supply is being depleted given the horrible situation in India, which has stopped exports of the vaccine while their crisis rages on. The vaccine supply from Pfizer is the most reliable so far. And this is why it's being tested in some drugstores, despite logistical challenges around its need to be stored at a super low temperature. Libby spoke about the Pfizer pilot with Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. We continue to work on the final details with the Ministry of Health. Uh, Our expectation would be later this week, hopefully within the next couple of days, we'll be launching in a limited fashion in eight pharmacies in Toronto, as well as eight uh, in Peel region. So there'll be 16 in total. Uh, Those uh, locations are essentially chosen by the public health units and the Ministry of Health to be in hotspots. And there will be a limited amount of Pfizer supply. Our hope is about two weeks we'll be able to test out all the operational elements and then broaden it out to other hotspot regions. The most complex part of this is in its distribution. It's not as stable uh, as the AstraZeneca or Moderna vaccine, so it can't be Uh, moved around a lot, um, and it has to be kept at uh, ultra-frozen temperatures um, while it's being stored until it's thawed, and then you only have that five-day period. It's also more complex to draw it out of the vial. There's the dilution that goes with it. There's six doses that are in the vial compared to 10 with AstraZeneca and Moderna, so some differences there in terms of the actual application and administering it. But all of these things are uh, available as resources to pharmacists. They've been educated and trained to do this. Some pharmacists are already doing this as they volunteer in public health units and the clinics. So we're well prepared to launch this. What about AstraZeneca? What about all those people, and I have to say myself included, that got a dose of AstraZeneca? Do you have any kind of information for us about that second dose? Yes, and I'm in that cohort as well. I I just received my AstraZeneca yesterday, and it's an important part of the planning that we need to make sure that we have enough AstraZeneca doses to 
uh, apply the second dose uh, within that 16-week uh, time frame. So we're encouraged by the discussions the federal government's having with President Biden in the U.S. Uh, we know they have 60 million doses sitting in a warehouse that will expire soon, and they have committed to distributing that um, beyond the borders of the U.S. They're not going to use any of it, which is hard to believe uh, in the U.S. because they have much more of Pfizer and Moderna. So I'm, I'm optimistic that we will have enough to cover off all of the second doses that have been administered. Now, I also read, and I don't know if our government is aware, but I also read that Israel has a bunch of AstraZeneca that they don't need. Is anyone aware of that? Well, I know the federal government's working on that. Uh, the current mix we have is actually from Sweden and from the U.S. of AstraZeneca that's out in the community. So it wouldn't be, um, you know, uh, certainly unprecedented to mix uh, from different countries. And I think that's part of the whole COVAX system uh, worldwide was meant to be sharing and, and prioritizing and sending vaccines so that uh, we can replenish and not have supply interruptions. What will the criteria be for getting it in the pharmacy, the age cutoff, or anything like that? I'm uh, optimistic that it will be 18 plus, and it'll allow us to uh, address some of the gaps, um, especially in the hotspot regions for essential workers that are um, at risk, and uh, educators and others that we know um, need to get vaccinated in order to get the pandemic under control. Mm -hmm. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? We're ready for this. This is something we've been advocating for since the launch of the program, uh, having all vaccines accessible through community pharmacies and other means is uh, the only way we're going to accelerate the vaccinations uh, across the province. So um, I think pharmacists have demonstrated our ability to mobilize quickly and do it safely. And uh, we're ready for this next challenge. Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Joe in Toronto phoned about what he sees as poor planning around treating COVID patients in hospitals. It's really alarming uh, and actually uh, quite unimaginable, you know, what's happening in this province where we're moving so many people um, away from 416 hospitals and we're relocating these people as far away as North Bay and Hamilton and, and Kingston. Uh, like, what is going on? Like, seriously, I, I know it's just poor planning on the, on the part of the government and the, and the ministry. So this is something unprecedented and never seen in this province where, you know, we're moving loved ones into completely different jurisdictions. And this is just a ministry that's scrambling because, you know, they're so ill-prepared. Uh, and, and, and I don't see... I don't see how that's um, how anybody could have planned that. That there's no way that people have actually planned that. 
And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Sita in Mississauga, who phoned about the decision to move some older hospital patients into long-term care while the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association, Doris Grinspun, was on fight back. I think you guys are looking at this all wrong. By moving the patients into care home, these patients will not be in the hospital where they're being there for so long and not having the specific care. By being in, in these homes, we will be freeing up the beds where patients in the hospital can go and come. The only issue is that they shouldn't should have a choice to go into the right home. But so they don't. They said they the reason they're in hospital is because they don't have a, a exactly. place. Exactly. And the other piece that to assume that in nursing homes they will receive the best better care than in the hospital when the poor homes don't have the staffing because nothing has changed between the announcement to today in terms of increasing staffing. Nothing. Well, they should come down more harder on these homes. These home, people are paying their, to be into these homes to have the love and the care that they need for the rest of their life. But they are just making profits. They should be charging the persons who is in charge. I mean, care workers who are working there, they should all be vaccinated so they can go from home to home freely. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.